your Bibles to the 10th chapter of Matthew. Uh, For two weeks, we have been studying in verses 16 through 23 of this 10th chapter in which Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples concerning ministry. And remember that Jesus called them and commissioned them with the gospel. He told them to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the king of the kingdom is Jesus. Jesus had come into the world. He was living among them right then. And so after 400 years of silence, God spoke again. And he spoke in a most wondrously, gloriously, glorious way through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to Israel at a time when they were devastated by false teachers. They were living under the oppressive weight of their religious leaders who taught them it is possible to be right with God by keeping an elaborate system of rules, by obeying different commandments. And so they were teaching people they could be justified by law. And what they had done was to depart from the Old Testament teachings of the patriarchs that a person is saved by faith alone. And so the disciples were commissioned with that task of teaching the people that you are saved by faith alone. And that was a monumental task to do. Jesus enlisted them with that help because there was so much ground to cover, so many people to talk to. But he told them when they went out that they were going to face a lot of opposition. And the apostles were literally taking their lives into their own hands by preaching the message of Christ. And we see that in verses 16 through 23. I'd like for us to look at this passage once again this evening. Uh, Next week, we're going to go on and and go to the next section, starting with verse number 24, which talks about the high cost of discipleship, the high cost of following Jesus. And in a sense, we're getting that as well, of course, in these verses. So if you look in Matthew chapter 10, verse number 16, Jesus said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak." For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man become. You'll notice that the apostles, when they were told this by Jesus, at this point, these 12 men must have had a deep confidence in him because he said, I'm sending you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And in that statement of Jesus, there's really an element of helplessness. This is not a a mission that they could accomplish on their own. They were not going to be able to go out and and teach this doctrine of righteousness by faith, faith in Jesus Christ, because the opposition to that message was so great, the power of the enemy was so great, the hatred of Satan against that doctrine of Christ is so great that it would take everything that they could do and all of God's power behind them in order for them to get people to believe the gospel of Christ. There's a hatred 
that exist among people for the truth of this gospel message. And there, there is a relentless stream of confrontation that Satan brings against people who preach the gospel. And he tries everything that he can to stop that from reaching into the hearts of people so that they can be saved. We see that over and over again in Scripture as the, Jesus talks about it, the apostles later on talk about it, about that fight that we have against Satan who wants to stop the gospel of Christ. But despite the opposition that they faced and the previous messages, we've noted that there would be protection for the preachers of the gospel because Jesus said, I send you forth. And in that eye is the promise of the shepherd. In that eye is the promise that Christ would be with him, that he would watch his sheep, that he would keep their souls safe. Because Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the great shepherd. He's the one who never leaves the sheep. And so he promises they will have everything that they need. Everything is going to be provided for them in order to accomplish the task that he gave. Now we have to remember this, that The purpose that Christ has left us in this world for is evangelism. We remain upon the earth for only one reason, and that is God has other people to save. And so instead of taking us out of this world immediately when when we receive the gospel of Christ, he leaves us here so that we can tell the gospel to others. You see, God has a method. He has a, a means by which people are saved, and that's always the gospel of Christ. He has ordained the method. And that's why that I get up here on Sundays, why I preach to you on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, on Wednesday nights, and whenever we have opportunity, it's because Christ has left us in this world to preach the gospel to others. And that doesn't always mean standing in a pulpit. Giving the message of Christ doesn't always mean standing up here and preaching from this place. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you have to go out on the street and stand on a soapbox and preach to people on the street. Those are good things to do. Preaching from here, preaching from there are good things to do. But really being a Christian and being a witness for Christ is a daily activity. It's something that you do every single day of your life. Every day of your life ought to show Christ. Now, we, we've termed this the, the actual living for Christ and the actual uh, method of our lives by which we teach others through what we do and the way that we act. We've called that the disposition of the witnesses with the gospel. Verse number 16 continues and says, Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And there Jesus is speaking of personal character. He says, you are the sheep of God, and you are in a defenseless position without the shepherd. But even though the shepherd is there, and he has promised to protect you, you're not to needlessly put yourself in harm's way. You have to be wise in your approach with the gospel, wise in your approach to a hostile world. And so he says you have to be shrewd like the serpent. You have to handle the gospel well. And he also says you have to be harmless as a dove and living a life that's undefiled, one that doesn't bring reproach upon the Savior. And so Jesus says, you are my sheep. And in John chapter 10, he said, I know the sheep, and my sheep know me. And so there is an expectation by Christ that the sheep are not going to be mistaken for wolves. The sheep know who the wolves are, and the wolves know who the sheep are. They very definitely know the sheep. Because the sheep act, live, and talk like the people of God. They have the disposition of God's people. Now, because we are sheep, 
And because we have a, a message that the world doesn't like and hungry wolves are out there trying to devour the sheep, then it's clear that the Bible teaches there is persecution. And so the third point that we've covered in these sermons is the persecution for the bearers of the gospel. If you are a witness for Christ, then you are going to bear the brunt of persecution. It's expected. And Jesus told the disciples this up front. It's going to happen. And although the message that we bring to people is a message of hope, it's one that tells them they can be delivered from their sins, they can escape the wrath of God and the punishment of hell, even though that is a a wonderful message that people hear, yet they're hostile to it. It's, It's in the heart of sinners to reject the gospel of Christ. And sometimes they reject it so strenuously that persecution is the result. And so we see, as Jesus teaches in this passage, that persecution will come from religious sources. It comes from governmental sources. And sometimes the hatred is so great that it even comes from your own family members. He says family will turn on family because of the gospel of Christ. So throughout the history of the church, we've had persecution from those three areas, from religion, from rulers, and from relatives. But the shepherd's still there, and he still promises that he will provide for for every person who decides that they're going to take up this kingdom work of giving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, tonight, I want to uh, continue that thought about persecution and show you that God has provided for that. So, fourthly tonight, I want to talk to you about the provision for the gospel. Verse number 18, Jesus said that you're going to be brought before governors and you'll be brought before kings you'll, and you'll give testimony against them. And the promise that Jesus gave when he said that was that you don't need to be anxious about it because we don't need to fear because God is going to bring to our minds and the method to our minds the method of defense and the words that we are to speak. Oh, there are two aspects of that that I want to show you tonight. And the first one is that we're not to fear intimidation. We're not to let people intimidate us because they don't like the message that we bring. Now, we need to remember who these apostles are. They are an educated men. They come from lowly occupations. They're not social climbers, and so they're not on the list of who's who. And they're not likely to be spoken to by dignitaries, and they're not even, they're not going to be in the company of dignitaries, and they're, they're not expecting to be addressed by those who are dignitaries. So I would think at the very least that when they would be brought before government officials that it would be intimidating to them. When they appeared before them, when they were called to appear, they had to be thinking. Thoughts had to stream into their minds, what am I going to say? How am I going to defend myself? How am I going to convince this person that the gospel of Christ is true? And what am I going to do when that leader, when that government official or that religious council actually holds my life in his hands? What will I do? And we think about that, how intimidating that that would be when even the government and and religious councils are so much against what you preach. How intimidating would it be to be brought before them? But we notice as we read through the history of of the church and we read about the apostles certainly as well that there was no intimidation when they were brought before government officials, not before religious councils, because martyrs and the apostles were calmly assuaged by the presence of a... their fear was assuaged by the presence of the Holy Spirit who came to them at the very moment that they needed it. Now I want to give you an example I thought was a just a really good example, an uncommon example of a young girl 
who was only 16 years old when she became the Queen of England. Her name was Lady Jane Grey, and she became the Queen of England when there was a power struggle between Mary, who was who now we know as Bloody Mary, and also between Queen Elizabeth I. Now, Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England for only nine days, and she was considered to be a pawn in this power struggle between the Roman Catholic Mary and the Protestant Queen Elizabeth I. And both of them, of course, were trying to become Queen of England at the time. And Lady Jane Grey was a Christian, and when Mary became the queen, that's when Bloody Mary became the queen, she decided that Lady Jane should be executed. And the only way that she would be spared is if that she would renounce her faith in God, that she would recant her belief in justification by faith alone, and then she would become a Roman Catholic. Now, it's amazing to read the story of this 16-year-old girl and the defense of the faith that she gave against, uh, against these people who, who hated what she believed, and really her defense of what she believed would put a lot of preachers to shame. I mean, what she really knew about Scripture. So she was questioned by a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Dr. Feckenham. And he was a, a uh, champion of the defense of the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass. And so what he did was to attempt to turn her from her faith. And she had these masterful arguments that she used against the Mass and against the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, if you don't understand what transubstantiation is, that's the Roman Catholic doctrine that says that when they consecrate the wine, that it turns into the blood, the actual blood of Christ. And when they uh, consecrate the host or the bread, that it becomes the actual body of Christ. Now, I want to read to you tonight, just for a few minutes, an exchange that took place between these two. Uh, This is from the book Lady Jane Grey, Nine Queen of England, a nine-day queen of England. And she was being questioned by this Roman Catholic priest, Dr. Feckenham. And uh, these are some some of the exchange that went on between them. I'll begin with this. It says, Jane then asserted the scriptural doctrine of justification by faith. In answer to this statement, Feckenham asked the question, Is there nothing else to be required or looked for in a Christian but to believe on God? Jane replied, Yes, we must also love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and our neighbor as ourselves. Feckenham thought he had caught her out and asked, Why then faith faith only justifies not? Faith doesn't save alone. But the 16-year-old was a match for the wily priest. She says, I deny that. I affirm that faith only saveth, but it is meet for a Christian to do good works in token that he follows the steps of his master Christ. But when we have done all, we are unprofitable servants, and faith only in Christ's blood saves us. Turning to the sacraments and their significance, Feckenham demanded, how many sacraments are there? Jane replied, two, the sacrament of baptism and the other sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Feckingham contradicted, no, there are seven. Jane responded, by what scripture find you that? Unable to quote scripture for his view, the priest brushed over that issue, saying he would discuss the significance of the two sacraments she had mentioned. Coming to the vexed issue of transubstantiation, Feckenham began by quoting Christ's words, Take, eat, this is my body. Could there be a clearer statement than this to prove the rightness of the Catholic doctrine? The 16-year-old knew full well that her life depended on her reply. 
But without hesitation, she answered, I grant you, he, says, he so saith. And he saith, I am the vine, and I am the door. But he is never more for that, a vine or a door. Does not St. Paul say, he calleth those things that are not as though they were? And God forbid that I should eat the very body and the blood of Christ. If his body were broken on the cross, it was not eaten of his disciples. Feckenham made a few further attempts to undermine his young defendant, but each time Jane had the final word and was able to declare with as much clarity as any theologian several times her age, I ground my faith upon God's word and not upon the church. For if the church be a good church, the faith of the church must be tried by God's word and not God's word by the church, nor yet by my faith. Folks, that is remarkable. We're talking about a 16-year-old girl. And there is an example of not being intimidated when your accusers look down on your faith in Christ. And so this young girl refused to renounce her faith when she knew that it would save her life. And the very next day, she was taken to the chopping block and her head was cut off. But she remained true. And she had the strength to face death when she needed it. And that's what God does for his people. Now, if you'll look in verse number 22, Jesus said, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. And that doesn't mean if you keep on doing good works that you'll be saved, if you're never sinned, that you'll be saved, that if you hold out long enough that eventually you will be saved. But what it does mean is that a Christian will prove the validity of his faith in Christ, of his salvation, by continuing in that faith. Real faith continues. And so when you see a a Christian that, that goes on in sin, that lives every day in defiance of what they claim to believe, if that person says they're a Christian, I can promise you this, that if they face death and they give up their faith, they never truly were a Christian. God gives confidence. Philippians says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And so true faith can never be given up. True faith never turns back. And the deliverance does come. The deliverance deliverance will come. At some point, the persecution ends. Sometimes God just takes it away. God changes the mind of the persecutor, or he makes it impossible to persecute. But sometimes God doesn't do that. Instead, God allows death to come. And when he does, death is also deliverance. And that's because when a Christian faces death and dies for the Lord Jesus Christ, the very next moment he wakes up in the presence of Jesus Christ. And that had to be the way that Lady Jane looked at that. She knew that if she lost her life right then, that she would be in the presence of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So she didn't back down. A simple recantation of her faith would have saved her life. And you wonder, how does a 16-year-old do that? How does a young girl like that do that? She has so much to look forward to. Her life could be so much longer, just a simple thing to say. Well, I don't believe that anymore. I'll convert. I'll be something else. I'll be whatever you want me to be. But she didn't do that. She held on to her faith, and that proves real Christianity. Now, you can read the 11th chapter of Hebrews, and you'll find many examples there of people who would not give up their faith, and that's because real faith does not turn back. People often ask me the question, what about so-and-so? They claim to be a Christian, and we haven't seen them around for a long, long, long time. Uh, They're still living in sin. They're doing this, and they're doing that. What do you conclude by such things? I conclude by that, that according to the Word of God, that person was never saved. 
That's not a person that I believe is going to stand up for their faith and die for the cause of Christ when they won't live for him. Now, we don't really have to worry too much about facing a chopping block. It's not likely that we're going to be burned at the stake. But I can promise you this. If you deny your faith by living like the world, and if you can go 24-7 and people never know that you are a Christian, then you're not going to stand up for Christ and die for him. Now, in the next section, when we start at verse number 24, we'll talk a lot more about things like this. But there are many people that think that they're Christians, and folks, they're not even marginally decent people. They're not really Christians. They give no evidence in their daily lives. So they're not going to stand up like this 16-year-old girl and give a defense of their faith without hesitation. So that's the first provision of the gospel. Don't fear intimidation. Governors, kings, rulers of this world, they only represent this world. The king of kings, Jesus Christ, is king of the universe. He controls everything. There is no king that's a match for Jesus. So he says in Matthew 10, verse 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, secondly... I want to swing this discussion back to the apostles in particular. Jesus says in verse number 19, But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. So we'll notice here, secondly, that they would speak with inspiration. With inspiration. Now, there are many instructions that are given in this passage that, that fit ministers of the gospel. And there are other things that are spoken of in the passage that really would relate to uh, just the average Christian or you as someone who serves in the church and someone who wants to give the gospel of Christ, who wants to be a witness. There are many things in the passage that relate to both of those areas, but there are also some things here that are strictly for the apostles. It's particularly for them. It's not for you and me. Now here the word of God says that the apostles, Jesus said that you will appear before councils and before courts. And he says God is going to put it into your mouth what you shall speak. In other words, he's telling them that you'll be able to speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the words that you speak will be God's words. John Broadus wrote, this was clearly a promise of special inspiration in the highest sense and degree. And so you can look in the scriptures and you find people like Peter and Paul and Stephen that were examples of the Holy Spirit speaking directly through them. Now, if you'll turn to the book of Acts for just a moment, we're going to look at some examples. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested and they were brought to the Jewish council. And remember, this Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, are the high ups of Jewish Law And they know the Bible, they know Scripture, they know the ins and outs of it all. And so in Acts chapter 4, verse number 5, it says, And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the king, uh, kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, that is the apostles, when they had set them there, they asked them, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, 
Now, you can read on the rest of that passage, and Peter gave them the gospel, and then it finishes here in verse number 13, and it says, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now, you look at these men... And you know that we went through the lives of every one of them just a few months ago. We looked at 1 through 12, every one of the apostles. And you wonder, how is it that ignorant men are able to speak with boldness? And the Scripture tells us that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, that God put the words in their mouths. Now, it wasn't as if they became robots and sounded like a voice synthesizer or something came out of computer like Stephen Hawking. God spoke to them. The Holy Spirit influenced them. He filled their thoughts, and they actually spoke the words of God. Now, if you'll turn over to the sixth chapter, here you'll find Stephen doing miracles, and the Bible says he was full of faith and power. Acts 6, verse number 8 says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom, and listen, and the spirit by which he spoke. Stephen wasn't a special guy. We don't read anything in the scriptures about his special education. But when it came to debates and when it came to disputes between him and these learned men that were in in the synagogues, they were no match for his wisdom. And that's because the Holy Spirit spoke through him. Now, the Apostle Paul did the same. We could go on and we could read the accounts in chapters 24, 25, and 26 where Paul appeared before the Roman governor Felix and then after that to Festus and then finally before King Agrippa. And every time that Paul reasoned with those men, there was a sense that there was something very special about him. And they really couldn't quite put their finger on it. What, what was so different about Paul? Well, Paul explained what they couldn't put their finger on. And he said, it's the wisdom of God. That's how he preached the gospel. This is how he did it in the churches. And he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not in enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul didn't have a strong physical presence. He wasn't able to draw people in by his, his eloquence, by the way that he could speak. He didn't have tremendous oratory. Now, those were actually qualities that Greek-speaking people were looking for. They prized oratory. But Paul wasn't that. He wasn't Apollos. He wasn't known for his eloquence. But when he preached the gospel, it was powerful. And people were converted. And why? Because he was an apostle and because the Holy Spirit inspired him. God spoke through him. And so in these impromptu settings, when the apostles were hauled before courts and before councils, the Holy Spirit spoke through them. And you wonder how much more did the Holy Spirit speak to them when they were able to sit down and with pen in hand, with time to concentrate and to very carefully think that the Holy Spirit guided them as they wrote the words of Scripture. 
Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't work with us like that today. He doesn't work with us in the same way. There are times when we're pressed and we need an answer, and the Holy Spirit actually brings Scripture to our mind. Now, those Scriptures are things that have already been recorded in the Word. Those are things that we've already studied. See, God doesn't zap us with new revelations and doctrines that we haven't studied. You know, if God did that, then I could spend most days fishing. Or I could go golfing. And then I would come here on Sunday morning without any preparation at all. And I'd stand up here and I'd speak to you. And God would just speak through me. And you would hear what God says. And all of us would be content. And we all go home and say, we've heard the word of God. We've heard God himself speak. And oddly enough, there's some denominations that think that way. They think that they can get up and the preacher doesn't need to prepare. He doesn't need to study anything. He just gets up and he says, I have a word of knowledge. And then he begins to speak. And I can tell you right now, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I can also tell you that the people that listen to him are about as dry as a creek in the middle of August in the Death Valley. They don't know anything about the Word of God either. You see, the thing that I have to do, I have to study God's Word. I have to pray about it. I have to prepare for this. But there are times when God brings something to my mind when I'm standing here preaching to you. He may bring something in the middle of a sermon. But the reason he does that, it's not a new revelation. He's not speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He brings to my mind things that I've already learned in the Word of God by the study. And so when I sit down to write sermons, I ask the Spirit to guide me. And I ask him to give me the information that he wants me to present to you. But when I write it down, it's not inspired Scripture like the apostles had. I respect many good writers of books, and I enjoy the wisdom of the men that wrote the many commentaries that I have in my office. But there is not a one of them that could add anything to the Word of God. Not one of them wrote what they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the same sense that the apostles did. You see, when God completed Scripture, when the written Scriptures were done, that was the end of God's revelation. So the Bible is the complete Word of God. Since he inspired Scripture, there have been no sacred writings that have been added to God's Word. So here... It's Jesus teaching the apostles about being sheep among wolves. He talks to them about persecution that comes from many different sources. And he speaks about death and hatred. He talks about families that turn on each other. And we read this and we think, this is a bleak outlook. This just doesn't look right. This is terrible. God must have missed a cog somewhere because this won't work. This can't add up to success. I mean, how do you have success when every negative thing you can possibly imagine comes from preaching the gospel of Christ? How, how do you get success out of this? How can you get success when believers are persecuted and even killed? Won't the gospel be stamped out? Won't it end? Well, we look and we see how a strong negative actually becomes a positive. And you might not actually see this at first, but Jesus says in verse 23, But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Now what this is then is God's plan for the expansion of the gospel. This is how the negative turns into the positive. Now let's go back to the book of Acts and this time to chapter 8. Uh, Acts is the 
record of how the church spread out and how the gospel went everywhere in just a short amount of time. So what was it that prompted this rapid expansion of the gospel? Well, this is it. Persecution drives outreach. This is how the negative of persecution turns into the positive aspect of the gospel for the gospel of Christ. Persecution drives outreach. Now, Acts chapter 8 is before the apostle Paul was converted to Christianity. Chapter 7 ends with uh, Stephen being brutally stoned and killed. And Saul, who later became Paul, was standing by watching this. He watched Stephen stoned to death. That's in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Now, we go down to chapter 8, verse number 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, that is, to Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, preaching the word. After Pentecost, the disciples were fairly content to sit right there in Jerusalem in their comfort zone, preaching to Jews, preaching to the people around them. And there were instances where uh, sometimes the uh, disciples were taken and they were beaten, uh, brought before the council. We read that just a few moments ago. Uh, But that didn't seem to be an everyday occurrence. It was not like every single day they would step out on the street and right there there was waiting someone to take them in, haul them into prison for preaching. It happened sometimes, but it wasn't happening every day. But then along came this guy that was named Saul, and he was relentless in killing Christians. And he wasn't going to rest until he'd rounded all of them up, brought them all in, and the Bible says he put them in jail, and many of them were killed. And so because of him, people feared for their lives. He walked right into their houses. He dragged out the men and women and left the crying babies behind. And so here you have the uh, Saul uh, persecuting Christians, and Christians were afraid for their lives. And so what they did was they scattered out. They took off. They left Jerusalem, and they just kept going to escape the persecution. And so you get into chapter 9, and you find Saul going further out to find Christians. So now he's on his way to Damascus. Christians had spread out so far that in order for Paul to go get them all, he had to go to Damascus and and see Christians there. But we know what happened. God saved Saul on the way there. He became the apostle Paul. He was converted, and so the persecutor was then taken out of the way. The scripture says in Acts 9, verse 31, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So how did these Christians get everywhere? How did they get to Judea, Galilee, and Samaria? The persecution drove the outreach. And so there were many more people that were saved because of persecution. Now, you go back to Acts chapter 1, and Jesus said in verse number 8, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when Jesus said that, little did they know how and why that they were going to end up in Samaria, uh, all around Judea, and all throughout the uttermost parts of the earth. How were they going to get there, and why would they get there? 
It was because of the persecution. It kept driving them out. It drove the outreach. And so you see the same thing in Matthew 10, 23. He says, when they persecute you in this city, flee ye to another. So what do you do when persecution comes? Do you stay in the same place? Do you wait till they kill you? Well, there were some that were caught and killed before they could get away. But when the persecution reached that level in one place, then they would take off to another. The rest of the people took off, and they took the gospel with them. So the gospel spread that way. That's the way that Paul did it. Whenever Paul came to town, he was a riot waiting to happen. I mean, there was probably never a preacher that was thrown out of so many towns as the Apostle Paul. Today, that wouldn't look too good on your resume as a pastor. I mean, you come before the pulpit committee. The pulpit committee doesn't say, you know, before we hire you, we need to find out how many towns you've been run out of. And if you haven't been run out of anywhere, then we don't want you. They're, they're, gonna, they're not going to say that. There are a lot of preachers that get run out of town, but they picked too many pockets and had one too many healing campaigns or something, they might get run out of town. So persecution drives the outreach. And maybe we don't reach too many people today because we're not too busy trying to run away from the wolves and trying to keep ahead of them. So it's always been that way. You look in the modern world, you look at at Russia when communism was there. You look at China today with communism, and they've tried to stamp out Christianity. But what happens is that it thrives there. People are hungering and thirsting for the gospel. And we sit here in America in the land of opportunity. Nobody here is staring down a gun barrel for preaching the gospel of Christ. And folks, because we aren't, we're too lazy to get up off the couch. See, God knows what he's doing. And when we become too complacent, he knows how to get us going. Now, one more observation about expansion of the gospel we've done. Secondly, keep preaching until Christ comes. He says, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man become. Now, here is where this passage moves beyond the calling of thus these 12 men. Actually, it moves beyond into the church age that was to follow then. It moves beyond the time that we're living in right now. It goes all the way into the time of the tribulation until the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. At the rapture, all Christians are going to be removed from this earth. Now, we would think then, well, that must be the end of the gospel. You take away all the preachers and nobody's left to preach the gospel. But the scripture teaches that God is going to raise up a crop of preachers He's going to save 144,000 out of the tribes of Israel. 12,000 out of each tribe. And so 12,000 times 12, that's 144,000 special preachers of the gospel that God is going to raise up during that time. And when when they are preaching the gospel, then the Antichrist is going to pursue them everywhere. He'll be chasing them everywhere. And so they'll go throughout all the cities and all the towns and villages of Israel preaching the gospel of Christ. They'll keep going and keep going because the Antichrist is pursuing them. But then finally, the persecution is going to end. God's going to stop it all. And what Christ is going to do is to destroy the empire of the Antichrist. And you can read about that, of course, in Revelation chapter 18. And when the Antichrist comes and that kingdom is destroyed... That's when Christ comes to establish his kingdom upon the earth. So when when he's gone, Christ's kingdom comes. Now, do you see the Son of Man here in verse number 23? It's a reference to the second coming. 
Daniel prophesied about this in Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13 says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And so until Christ's kingdom comes, Christians will be persecuted. And then when Christ comes in the fullness of his glory, until he comes, rather, people will resist the gospel. They'll be hostile to the harmless. We bring them the message of Christ. We bring them a message of hope. We bring them a message that they can be delivered from hell and to their own peril and their destruction. They would rather go on in sin and finally be destroyed in the fires of hell. And that doesn't make much sense. When you're a Christian, that doesn't make much sense to you, does it, that people would do that? But we're not saved by good sense. We're saved by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be hostile towards, towards God until he comes and changes our hearts. So we'll always see this hostility. There will be no peace with God until God is satisfied for our sins. And that's when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and sins are covered. So one day persecution will end. Christ has assured the final victory, and he says, he that endures to the end shall be saved. He said in the 16th verse, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And so that's the promise of the good shepherd. I send you out. I am the good shepherd. And although you are among wolves... I'll be there to protect you. And so he never leaves us or forsakes us. And he says, in the end, you shall be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the message from your word, what we learn here, Lord, from from this text. And I just ask you, Lord, that you'd help us as your people to stand firm upon the gospel of Christ. No matter what the opposition is, no matter what people say about us, may we be willing to stand for our faith at all times, even to the death, like the young girl that we just talked about a little while ago. Lord, be with our people. Strengthen us in your word. Help us to live every single day of our lives like your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing. Would you live for Jesus and be always pure and good? Would you walk with him within the narrow road? Would you have him bear your burden, carry all your load? Let him have